at 3 p.m. on November 5th, the Melbourne Cup, the race that stops the nation, will be held. Australia's biggest race in terms of cultural capital warrants a public holiday in Victoria and unofficial half days at most workplaces across the nation. $350 million is gambled on Cup Day alone and $657 million over the four-day carnival. Then there are the more disturbing statistics, those found in the shadows but present since the race's inception. Two horses died in the first ever Cup race in 1861. Six horses have died as a result of the Melbourne Cup race since 2013. That's six in six years. If we look at the wider race season in Australia, 137 horses died on Australian racetracks from July 2016 until July 2017. And this doesn't even consider the treatment of horses off the track, who are often uh, kept inside except for short sessions of regimented exercise, or who are often pushed past the brink of physical comfort during races. The more brutal side of the race industry is receiving further light. Even Australia's national broadcaster aired a special episode of the 7.30 report on the dark side of horse racing just weeks before the big day. However, in a 2013 piece in The Guardian, Jeff Downsing wrote the following, which warned against expecting too quick a defeat of the Cup and its ancillary economics. He wrote... Like the untouchable oil and coal mining capers, a global Melbourne Cup audience of 700 million suggests racing authorities hold the whip hand on dissenters. There's too much at stake in an industry that generates 64,000 full-time jobs and over a billion dollars in state and federal taxes per year. Furthermore, Australian thoroughbred racing claims to spend approximately $30 billion, leading to a direct economic impact of $41 billion. According to the VRC last year, the Spring Carnival alone generated 366 million economic stimulus to Victoria and 752 million nationally. Looking at these extraordinary numbers, how does one even begin to challenge such an imposing beast? And as lords of the planet's food chain, we ultimately inflict similar fates on cows, sheep, and a myriad of other creatures anyway, don't we? This final line from Downsing implies and suggests this is a broader issue than just the race industry, and asks questions of our use of animal as labor, as pets, and as food. In all this, we might ask, what is a Christian to do? Where does treatment of horses fit in theology and Christian ethics? How does the farming, killing, and eating of non-human animals relate to our doctrines of creation, reconciliation, and redemption? Are non-human animals our neighbors? in the sense that Jesus meant when summarizing the law? Can humans have meaningful, non-utilitarian relationships with non-human animals? And is that considered a witness to the prophetic vision of a redeemed world where lions lie down with the lamb? To help us navigate these questions and more, including one about Peppa Pig, I am joined by Professor David L. Clough, Professor of Theological Ethics at the University of Chester in the UK. His books include Ethics in Crisis, Interpreting Bart's Ethics, Faith and Force, A Christian Debate About War. He co-edited Creaturely Theology on God, Humans and Animals, and Animals as Religious Subjects. In 2015, he launched Creature Kind Project, which engages churches in the UK and North America with farmed animal welfare as a faith issue. Today's discussion centers on his recently completed landmark two-volume work on animals. Volume 1, Systematic Theology, was published in 2012, and Volume 2, Theological Ethics, came out this year, both published with Bloomsbury, and both I recommend heartily. Please welcome David to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Well, David, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting to have you here and to be talking about your your two-volume work on animals, which people can pick up now, and I encourage them to do so. The uh, second volume just came out this year. It's Uh, one of the few examples where I encourage people to judge a book by the cover. I'm really enthusiastic about those two Franz Marc paintings that I managed to get on the covers. Oh, they're really excellent. Yes, I, I remember my, when I first started to read them, my wife looked over and goes, oh, that looks good. Oh, that looks interesting. <laughs> I'm like, ah, excellent, doing its job. <laughs> yep. Uh, so we're starting this conversation, and people will have heard this in the intro, to um, kind of talking particularly about the Melbourne Cup and, I guess, horse racing in particular. 
this is a focus of one of the chapters in the volume two, which talks about uh, the use of non-human animals for uh, sport and entertainment. Mm -hmm. But I thought before we kind of, as we get into that, I guess all of this hinges on that the assumption that the purpose of non-human animals isn't just for my use, isn't just to satisfy humanity's needs and wants. I mean, mm -hmm. someone might say like, but wait, isn't that why Adam got to name all of them? Isn't that why they were created before us and, you know, were offered as helpers, but were deemed, you know, not entirely adequate for that task? I guess what I'm asking in brief is, uh, what is the why of the non-human animals that causes me to care about their life and death independent of my own? Yeah, and I think that's a really important initial question. In a sense, it's the question that drove me to write the whole of volume one on systematic theology, because I started off really wanting to write a Christian animal ethics. Mm. And what I realized when I started to get in conversation with fellow Christians in the pews and sort of elsewhere is one of the first questions was, well, didn't God make the animals for us to use? And uh, I realized that if that basic question was undetermined or determined in what seemed to me a really problematic direction, I needed to pay some really se serious attention to sort of theological underpinnings of the kind of uh, engagement with animals that I wanted to encourage. So once you begin to ask the question, um, what animals are for, I think it becomes really clear that the idea that animals are f uh, other animals other than humans are for us looks like a really bad theological mistake. Um, so, and there are lots of different ways we could come at that. To start with, it seems to me something as fundamental as a Christian confession of monotheism has implications here, that we worship a God who is not just a, um, a sort of local deity of the particular sort of species Homo sapiens, but the God of all creatures. And that means sort of everything made, including, you know, black holes and distant stars and galaxies and so on. You know, so we start off needing a theology that's big enough to encompass God's relationships to all of those creatures and recognize our, ourselves as one creature among that myriad uh, uh, range of creatures that God made, all of whom sort of glorify God in their flourishing. Um, and so once we realize that God is the God of all creatures, then it seems to me, you know, we go back to read Genesis 1, uh, and you say, well, human beings are created last there. When some early Jewish and Christian thinkers were looking at that passage of Genesis 1, they thought being created last looked like some kind of embarrassment. So Philo of Alexandria, um, Jewish uh, philosopher in the, in the first century, um, I sort of imagine has uh, Plato's Timaeus, um, so this uh, a, you know, contemporary account of creation on one side and Genesis 1 on the other, and Plato's Timaeus looks like it really does privilege the human because human, you know, human male human soul is created first um, and then gets wrapped around with all the rest of the sort of creaturely reality in the universe in order to protect this vulnerable human soul from um, the forces that would otherwise destroy it. So in Plato's account, human beings are literally at the center of everything. Um, and Philo and other early Christian theologians had to kind of make an apology of, well, why don't humans look more important in the Genesis account? You know, why does God wait till day six to create humans and creates them on the same day as all the other land animals? Uh, and so that was really, when I first encountered that, it, it made me read Genesis in a new way and to realize that we have five whole days of creation where God is delighting in the being of all of these other kinds of creatures in their own right, without any regard to their purpose in relation to uh, other creaturely life, declares the creatures of all those different days good, uh, you know, before uh, humans uh, are on the scene. And so we need to seriously question the idea that I think is pretty widespread in popular Christian imagination, that God made animals for us. Uh, I think that's an unbiblical idea. I think there's uh, really strong theological reasons uh, to worry about that uh, attempt to, what seems to me, import our own sense of self-importance into the biblical text. That's great. And, and a really helpful, like, you know, laying the groundwork for where we're going to go. So, uh, your work on, on horse racing uh, exists in a chapter that, that also includes your discussion on, on big game hunting 
and circuses, among a few other things, uh, and like fishing and other hunting. Um, mm -hmm. I think that proximity is important uh, as it kind of complicates some of the distinctions people might erect between different forms of non-human animals in sports and entertainment uh, what, or, or kind of bring into conversations around fairness and things like that. Uh, what did you want, I guess, demonstrate by, by putting these together in that chapter? So in volume two, I was trying to... Um, provide a fairly comprehensive survey of the, the ways we're using other animals. And so I talk about food and labor and textiles and exp experimentation and pets and companion animals. Um, as I tried to think about the right categories there, one kind of category seemed to be, well, well what's the reason we give for our use? So, you know, so we, we use lots and lots of animals uh, for food uh, because, you know, because we, we, we want to eat them. Um, and so that's, a, you know, important characterization. The uses I tried to group together in the chapter that included horse racing is I think sometimes the answer we give for our use of other animals is this it's fun. We, we really uh, in, enjoy it. It makes us, uh, it, it entertains us. Uh, uh, and so whether that's people who like going uh, uh, fishing um, and maybe they, you know, they would prefer not to be killing the fish, but they just like the activity of catching the fish and then maybe releasing uh, them again. That's a sort of entertainment. It's a sort of leisure pursuit. And it seems to me that it's appropriate to group together um, the kinds of uses uh, that we uh, make of animals uh, just for fun, because there's a particular moral question there. Um, we can query the necessity of whether or not we need to use animals for uh, food or for te textiles or for research experimentation. There's interesting conversations to be had there. Uh, but it seems to me really obvious that the question of necessity fails in when we're using animals for fun. You know, we can have fun in lots of ways. We don't need to be causing suffering and death of animals uh, uh, for fun. Um, and so that seems to be a really important categorical uh, distinction uh, to make that there seems to would need a very very high standard of justification um, to uh, defend the idea of causing uh, fellow creatures of fellow animal creatures of God suffering and death just for our own entertainment. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think also what we see with horse racing is, and you kind of touch on this in the book. Um, the sport of watching horses run really fast isn't what really brings people. To the races anymore it is it is the gambling industry is the you know to, mm -hmm. to the the kind of attraction we have to putting money on something that has an uncertain outcome um mm -hmm. and as that's become uh more other ways of doing that obviously um the horse racing has taken a bit of a a dip but i think that itself you know shapes the way that we think about this about horse racing and about the use of non-human animals in this kind of way is that it's not even about you could say oh i like to see horses at their most natural which is them running fast and i don't get to see that in the, the plains so i can do it here so that, the fact that it's really being shifted into uh, an economic activity also challenges the way we're using horses in this yeah the scales really fell from my eyes on that when i began reading um, the sort of annual reports of the UK racing industry um, and look, began to look at the reports they were making financially about how horse racing was going in the uh, UK. Um, and uh, horse racing is on the decline in the UK, which I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see. Mm. Um, and the thing that's driving the, the number of races, and this was what really surprised me, is that the gambling industry needs events for people to be uh, putting money on. Mm. And so that's where a lot of the funding comes for this whole elaborate extravagance of horse racing um, in the UK and elsewhere. And that means that lots of the races that are being staged uh, day by day and week by week in the UK and I'm sure in Australia too, are there just to create events with an uncertain outcome uh, that the gambling industry can sell to people to, to gamble on. And so that intersection between... Uh, the promotion of gambling and uh, this um, animal event um, with, you know, as we'll talk about considerable negative effects on the animals uh, wrapped up in them. That, the economics of it uh, you know, really, really struck me strongly when I was researching this. 
Um, I mean, I, I would say it's complicated. I'm sure, I, I, I mean, there are lots of people involved in the industry who, uh, you know, would talk about how that they love horses. They came into the industry, you know, the people who are looking after racehorses in their stables, or, you know, uh, animal lovers, uh, people who, uh, uh, you know, are, are riding horses. I'm sure we'll talk about the delight of, um, uh, of interacting so closely uh, with this particular creature. I'm sure a lot of the people who are going uh, do you know, have this experience of sort of delighting in the excellence of uh, these creatures. Uh, and so I think, you know, that is being, that's part of the mix. But uh, as soon as we begin to um, engage with that kind of potential sort of sympathy for animals, that really heightens the questions uh, to find out what it's like and what the implications are for the animals concerned. And I think a lot of the people who are going along and having some of that sense of, aren't these horses magnificent? would be really troubled if they began to realize uh, what, the, what the lives of these horses are like. Now, there might be some people who are watching this who are thinking, oh, this is just, you know, virtue signaling PC lefty Christians of the 21st century. But kind of as you show in this chapter, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say, Christians who engage in particularly hunting or even the spectacles of, of animals racing and fighting stand outside of much of the tradition of the church, from early Christians to later saints to uh, key reformers. Uh, I guess can you speak a little to you know the way that tradition has kind of had a voice on this topic that I guess emerged out of, as you say in the book, um, the fact that they often shared the same faith in those early days. Yeah, and, and this goes way back. I think we need to really attend to how the sort of depth of... Um, uh, the, the depth of feeling within biblical Jewish and later Christian tradition goes in relation to um, just uh, uh, killing animals for fun. So killing animals in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Old Testament is a problem. Um, and it need, you know, it's hedged around by all kinds of uh, uh, conditions and permissions. God does give permission for the first time for killing of animals in Genesis 9 after the flood, uh, but says make sure you don't consume the animal with its blood, uh, which is its life, the thing that it has common, in common with humans. And then um, obviously is uh, the sort of Jewish um, ancient Israelite law puts astonishing uh, careful conditions about when it's permissible to kill animals. Uh, and one of those things is wild animals are off the menu. Um, uh, for Israel. That's not the kind of clean animal that you get to eat. That's, and they, you couldn't be uh, killing and um, uh, consuming animals in a way that was sort of fit for the law um, in the vast majority of cases. Um, and so you have this particular space of legitimate um, killing, but going out and hunting uh, wild animals is, is beyond the bounds. And it's really interesting to see that carried through into uh, Jewish and Christian traditions um, in sort of post-biblical uh, times, this real sense of, okay, we could defend the killing of animals for food when we need to on the basis of the, this necessity. But the idea about uh, going out and killing wild animals for fun consistently gets um, rejected by uh, uh, Jewish and Christian thinkers and is as an example of just a you know, failure to comprehend the meaning of the lives of these fellow creatures. So my favorite example of this is um, Ivan the Terrible. So this, this Russian leader who's a, who's a tyrant and horrifically cruel to humans in uh, warfare and, uh, and other ways. And he was persuaded by the church in Russia that he should stop hunting uh, animals because it was uh, counter to his Christian faith. And so he did. He stopped hunting animals um, uh, at the same time as he's pursuing all of these, uh, you, know, you know, sort of warring policies in relation to uh, fellow human beings. And so that gives you a sense of how this particular issue of, of killing animals for fun um, sort of fits in a Christian context. And the, the other striking bit of the history um, for me, came when I was researching. So I'm, I'm a Methodist, a, British, a member of the British Methodist Church, and it's really striking to find that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was particularly concerned about cruelties towards animals. Um, and when I was researching into that a bit further, one of my questions was how far did Wesley's concern about animal cruelty um, follow through into early Methodism and the kind of thinking of other evangelicals. And it turns out it's a really big concern. And so I was looking through in the John Ryland's 
uh, library near me here in Manchester. I was looking through early editions of the Methodist magazine and things which are in the late 18th, early 19th century, and they're filled with um, reproducing sermons against animal cruelty. And the animal cruelties they're most concerned with in that period are blood sports. Um, so really nasty contemporary practices of killing animals in, um, uh, and causing suffering and death to animals in, in, in lots of ways. But also, interestingly, abuse of animals. So, so strikingly, one sermon, um, early 19th century, talks about an example where people had bet on the outcome of whether a uh, a horse could be sort of raced over a ridiculously long distance, like 100 miles or something, over a particular period of hours. And the preacher, um, I think this is in Bath Abbey, the preacher says, uh, look, this is just a, a colossal example of our abuse of our uh, position and power over these fellow uh, creatures. And it's just, uh, it's, you know, a, an obvious example of of our thoughtless cruelty and, and, and unchristian um, attitudes towards uh, fellow creatures. I'm also struck that uh, this gets picked up, cruelty towards animals um, gets picked up as a key indicator for C.S. Lewis in uh, his writings. So people probably familiar with his Narnia writings where animals play a, a big role and talking animals, uh, you know, this big uh, uh, feature of the, the Narnian universe. But um, in addition, he has this science fiction uh, trilogy, Perilandra, where it turns out that cr needless cruelty towards animals is about as, is, is the clearest example C.S. Lewis finds in that in the whole of the trilogy for what sat for a satanic attitude towards fellow creatures uh, looks like. So he has this satanic figure Watson who just needlessly uh, uh, destroys and leaves sort of suffering and dying uh, fellow animal creatures. And so I think it's a really deep. Uh, uh, sense uh, deep within Christian biblical uh, and theological traditions that this needless cruelty towards animals is always going to be a particular scandal in a Christian context. Mm, that's really that's really helpful, and I think that, that we can kind of maybe sidestep here into kind of the way the two volumes work with the tradition. Like we've seen there, this sense of a kind of a retrieval of hey, the, the church has paid a lot more attention to animals than we do now. Um, one of my favourite sections in Volume 1 is the recounting of a long ecclesial court case uh, about um, whether, whether um, was it weevils? No, uh, what if... Yeah, yeah. So, so weevils attacking attacking grain was... Yeah, yeah a particular. long ecclesial court case. And, and you cite that, and you've cited other, um, other sermons from, from earlier in, in the church. And, but then there's, so there's the retrieval aspect. There's also an expansion aspect. Um, and you see that with particularly your work with Bart, which is to kind of go like, look, if you just take the category Bart is working with and open it up a little bigger, the, the, the dogmatics can hold and say something about all this. So do you want to talk a little about how you kind of, you know, you're not trying, you know, early in the book, like, this is not just like, I'm just picking this up from nowhere. You know, you're, I mean, you're engaging the tradition uh, in this kind of both a retrieval and an expansion. And, and sometimes a critique based on, we just know more now. But yeah, do you want to talk a little about that and, and what kind of um, fueled that choice? Yeah, it was really crucial to me to be uh, having an argument at the heart of uh, Christian texts and traditions. So there have been some um, attempts that have been sort of finding sort of marginal references in um, uh, texts that we haven't really considered central or thinkers um, that we haven't really uh, considered, you know, crucial for the uh, tradition and to identify, you know, sort of major landmarks in the Christian tradition as just uh, sort of getting it wrong in relation to uh, animals. I wanted to do something uh, much more wholehearted um, in relation to my theological engagement. I wanted an argument right at the heart of uh, where we've uh, put together sort of key uh, ideas on the basis that I think actually the, the, there's a strong trajectory, internal trajectory, even if not um, often recognized that does drive us towards a really radical appreciation of uh, what it means to be living alongside fellow creatures of the God that we worship. And so I had a real confidence that, that, that diving deep into the heart of the tradition, asking uh, uh, questions almost for the first time in relation to animals uh, mm -hmm. and really pushing as far as I could to work out what the best theological argument uh, here is I had a deep confidence that that was going to come out okay. That that, that you know the core deep commit Christian commitments um, uh, uh, were directing us uh, to uh, 
to a, a deep appreciation and, uh, and empathy with, with uh, our sort of uh, fellow fellow creatures of God. Um, and that doesn't that means for me, um, as you say, um, sort of strong critique at, at certain points. So. Augustine, for example, asks, uh, defends killing of animals on the basis that they don't have society with us in reason. So he sort of takes on a um, quite a, a sort of commonplace within Greek thought that uh, rationality was a key distinguisher between humans and other animals. And he uses that as the justification for, uh, you know, it's, it's wrong to kill humans, but it's okay to kill uh, non-human animals. Um, and so that's you know, an example there of, okay, so that's an argument we find in the uh, tradition. That's the argument um, Augustine uses. What happens when we subject that to critical scrutiny? First of all, we know rationality is not um, a sort of on-off uh, binary now. There are degrees of rationality, both within and beyond uh, the human. Uh, so we know some humans are more rational than others in terms of their cognitive ability. And so that um, Augustine's uh, definition of rationality as this kind of key um, identifier causes problems if we want to think about a moral responsibility to human infants or people with severe learning disability uh, or people with dementia. Um, so using cognitive uh, functioning or ability is uh, a problem internal to the human case. And then we also have made all kinds of discoveries about the rationality of uh, non-human uh, animals. We find that um, dolphins can sort of pass grammar, P-A-R-S-E grammar, you know, so, it, so they can understand how um, sentence structure is uh, formed in relation to instructions to them. We find parrots can um, work with um, uh, abstract concepts like color and shape. So Alex the parrot, you could you know, show the parrot uh, what's the difference between these objects, and uh, Alex could tell you whether or not the difference was color or shape, and and so on. And then lots of examples in relation to primates of a deep sense of fairness, you know, a deep sense of fairness and justice, and even being uh, prepared to sort of forego rewards uh, because they thought it was unfair. Someone else was getting uh, rewarded better for a particular piece of work than um, uh, primates. So, so rationality we need to recognize is a continuum across the non-human and human. Uh, uh, world. And of course, there are degrees, but the idea that we ought to decide whether or not a particular being is killable or not on the basis of their rational functioning, just be, you know, for all kinds of ethical and theological reasons, looks like a very, very bad way to set this, set this up. And so that's, you know, that's, that's an example for me of how um, if we engage deep with the tradition and really push uh, questions, I think we can find really interesting uh, uh, novel answers. And you know, I've got enough respect for Augustine to think, well, if we were, if he was in the room and, you know, or on the, on the call and uh, we were having these arguments, I think he would, uh, it seems to me he would want to, want to concede some, some ground here in relation to whether rationality works. And, and once we begin to open that question, um, that um, forces us to rethink, uh, you know, quite significant parts of where animals feature in the later tradition. So Thomas Aquinas, who excluded animals uh, from moral duties for Christians, either under justice or charity, you know, is heavily dependent on Augustine at that point, similar arguments. And I think there are wider trajectories in Aquinas's thought, which again, drive us to a much uh, uh, sort of uh, broader appreciation of what it might mean to live well as Christians alongside other animals. And Bart's another uh, case in point. Um, so, you know, mid 20th century uh, Swiss thinker, he, um, uh, at some points, he could be uh, mis it could be understood as saying God sets up the whole of the universe. The whole creation is ordered to express this covenant between God and Homo sapiens. Um, and so, the you know creation is the external basis of the covenant. Uh, Bart says. I think that's a really, really significant problem, not just for the anthropocentrism, the sort of human-centeredness that he critiques elsewhere in the dogmatics, but also, you know, just for the plausibility of, of, of Christian doctrine. Once we begin to realize that we are, you know, circling one of a billion stars in one of a billion similarly-sized galaxies in our universe, I think we need to be very careful about putting the, you know, the whole truth and plausibility of Christian faith on the basis of we're the center of things. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. I think, um, yeah, you're right. There's the amount of ways things just kind of, um, dominoes kind of start tipping once you start asking some of these key questions or, or make the early assumptions that we've kind of talked about, about the purpose of the animal, uh, the non-human animal. 
Um, Sorry, the, the, I mean, the other bit that excites me about that is that it begins to be, become clear that once you push this question about non-human animals, it provokes you to all kinds of interesting theological thinking that goes way beyond uh, the animals. So Claude Lévi-Strauss said uh, animals are good to think with, and I think that's, a re that's true theologically as well. It, it, it helps us to a better a better account of theology to sort of push uh, these questions that follow from attending to um, how we, you know, ha what, what place these fellow creatures should have in our uh, uh, thought. And I think I think it can it can be good for Christian theology to be thinking with animals. I mean, both for the sake of animals and for us, but also more broadly for the coherence of the project. Mm, that's really helpful. So as we keep wading out from our initial starting point to the the broader work of the book. Um, you know, some might say, you know, with, with the horse racing thing or even with, with food that, that our engagement with these non-human animals somehow does give them, you know, a significance. You know, these horses, they you know, do give us some sense of entertainment and joy and doesn't that honour them in some way? Or this animal that is killed from eating, that you know, sustains my life and brings together the family around the table and that bestows it some significance. So I thought it would be helpful to ask, I guess, because you talk about all animals, human and non-human, having a vocation. And that all creatures somehow, you know, their meaning is about living before God in a particular way. Mm -hmm. I guess what does, can you unpack that a bit, I guess what that means for the non-human animal and how that kind of uh, speaks back into what we've been talking about so far? So one of the reference points for me uh, here in recognizing how we think about the vocations of, of, of all creatures is uh, that great piece of creation theology, uh, theology, Psalm 104. And so Psalm 104 lays out, uh, sort of, it also unwraps the whole of this sort of creaturely space and celebrates the God who is the uh, maker and sustainer of all these different creatures, puts them each in their uh, creaturely space. Um, and going back to Bart for a moment, Bart's a bit embarrassed that human beings um, are just mentioned uh, in passing about halfway through uh, the psalm. Um, and for me, that's a, a really good reminder to us that we need to recognize uh, that we have this uh, place alongside other creatures. And the Psalms and the wisdom uh, literature uh, more broadly and uh, sort of scripture as a whole then, I think leads us to the sense that each of these creatures have their own place, have their own particular mode of being um, and glorify God in that particular mode of uh, flourishing. Um, uh, so, you know, as I look out of my window, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing uh, uh, trees that are just in the UK uh, coming into autumn, sort of changing uh, color of their leaves. And it seems to me that, you know, the vocation of an oak tree, you know, is to, is to take in nourishment and grow and thrive um, and, uh, you know, delight people. Uh, uh, its creator in in its in its in its in its flourishing and then you know yes also provide a space for sort of other creatures to you know to be uh, hospit hospitable to other creatures you know there's a particular way of being an oak tree that glorifies uh, the creator of uh, that oak tree and every creature has their own particular vocation before God and their particular mode of flourishing. I, I just sort of imagine a God who is delighting in the particularity. You know, when we're watching a sort of David Attenborough nature uh, documentary and, and, and wondering about these, you know, just being amazed at these sea creatures and all their particular, you know, their difference and, and strangeness and, and beauty, it seems to me that that's, that's, a, that's a theological response. That's a sense in which um, all of these creatures are doing their creaturely thing uh, before God and 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 that's their calling that's that's their uh, vocation and so we have a particular distinctive calling sometimes people misunderstand what I'm saying in volume one to say I'm to that, that I'm sort of trying to flatten everything out and there's nothing distinctive about being human I don't mean that at all we have our particular distinctive astonishing way of being a creature of God uh, and we're called to do that in as you know in as creative and full uh, you know full and as full a way as we can, you know, using all of the particular gifts that we're given as creatures to, to, to praise and worship our, our God in the way we live. But we need to recognize that 
that every other creature is also doing their thing. The black hole is uh, doing its thing. The mountain it's doing its thing. The, the hills in the Psalms are clapping their hands, you know, in response to uh, God's grace. And so every, you know, Jesus in his teaching, when uh, people tell the crowds to be quiet on Palm Sunday, he says, um, well, if, they're, if they were quiet, the stones would be crying out. And I think that just gives you an astonishing sense that, that the whole of the creaturely world is, has to do with, uh, with, with, with the divine and has to do uh, with God. And, you know, the first Christologies and Colossians and Ephesians talking about the God who is reconciling all things in heaven and earth uh, to God's self. And so it starts to, to me to seem slightly mystifying how we've thought that we're the only creature with a calling or the only creature with a vocation or the only creature that matters to God when we've inherited texts which say exactly the contrary. I think that becomes then a really helpful like lens through how we think about our treatment of non-human animals is, is my engagement with them uh, stopping them living that particular life before God? Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess a question I want to ask that comes out of that, which I was thinking about, you know, as you're reading the book and you do address this is, so, okay, you watch the David Attenborough thing and we watch uh, a lion chase down a gazelle and we're like, that is a lion being a lion. Um, yet, you know, the, the prophetic visions are the lion will lie down with the lamb and, and that, that, that this kind of desire to uh, and need to hunt and kill be removed. But I guess... Does that raise a question that this kind of redemptive vision is somehow removing the particularity of the lion or the, the lamb or whatever it might be? Yeah, that's. I think it's a really um, interesting question because um, it sort of really put, begins, you know, thinking again, I think thinking animal, thinking about animals is good for theology because um, as we try and think about some of these questions in uh the context of uh, a theological engagement with the evolutionary uh, theory and a sort of science or religion dialogue, um, recognizing that our theology needs to have something to say about the more than human world, uh, you know, provokes really hard questions uh, at this point. And so we've got what seem to me non-negotiable visions of what it would look like for uh, God's uh, reign to be fully present um, uh, in the more than in the human and more than human world, um, and so we've got a vision in uh, Genesis one or, and Genesis two about what peaceable uh, relations between creatures uh, look like. You know, no one's getting killed and eaten in in those uh, visions. Uh, we've got um, Isaiah's visions of what's it going to look like when the Messiah comes. Well, one of the first signs is the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb. And so this intra-creaturely violence, um, both between uh, different kinds of wild animals and between humans and other animals, is no longer present uh, in, the, in, this, in Isaiah's vision of the Messianic uh, reign. We've got Paul's vision of a creation that's currently groaning um, in labor pains, um, but that, that those pains are going to come to a productive end and creation is going to be liberated from its bondage to uh, decay. And John Wesley was really insistent that that included the animals. The animals were going to be redeemed in his sermon, The General Deliverance. And then we've got this sort of uh, revelation uh, vision of worship in the new creation where um, you've got a lamb in the center standing as if slain and then these four weird human-animal hybrid creatures from Ezekiel kind of uh, popping up and then uh, uh, humans and then every creature in heaven and earth and the, uh, in the air and the land and the sea uh, worshiping uh, God. So we've got um, this sense that... Um, uh, that, that, that uh, God has to do with uh, all of these uh, different creatures. Um, and now you need to remind me what the question, where we were headed with that question, because I got, got so excited about these creaturely visions. <laughs> so does that then challenge this idea that um, God, that, that the vocation is their, living their particularity? Because isn't the particularity of the lion to be a predator? Um, yeah, right. So, yeah, so, so um, a friend of mine, Chris Southgate, um, um, wrote a um, a book called The Groaning of Creation, where he's really concerned to how we can um, uh, create, how, how we can understand the violence that seems present in the evolutionary process, where creatures live and die and develop um, through sort of scarcity and con- contest uh, and, and so on, uh, and a Christian uh, theology of creation. And he wants to take really seriously the idea, I think the phrase he uses, uh, which is a quotation, and I can't remember from whom, um, that the gazelle's leg is carved by the lion's 
jaw or something like that. But the, the idea that, you know, gazelles um, have achieved their creaturely excellence um, in contest with lions achieving their creaturely excellence because they're each driven to become, you know, lions driven to become uh, a better and better predator and that drives a gazelle to become a faster and faster escapee. Um, and so their creaturely excellence seems to be kind of knit together with this um, evolutionary process. And that drives Chris to say that um, a lion must still be a predator in the new creation uh, because the essence of lion is a predator. Um, and so he has this, what seems to me a really nasty picture of gazelles continuing to get eaten by lions in the new creation, but it doesn't hurt them. And then they get resurrected to get eaten again. And, I, and, and, so, and so that's one way of resolving uh, the tension, it seems to me. Um, but it, that seems to me to give up really, really significant parts of um, our, uh, the sort of scripture on theological witness that we worship a God who uh, desires uh, a peaceful coexistence between creatures. And for me, then, that means that I'm driven in a different theological direction. Um, and so um, the, the way that I begin to uh, engage with this question is to recognize that what we're dealing with in seeing the relationship between lions and gazelles is 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 just another particularization of the problem of evil that we've kind of have to engage with uh, much uh, more fully or have to at least to live with so we find ourselves in the midst, you know, we wake up uh, and come to consciousness and find ourselves in the midst of a world that we realize is a pretty nasty place for a lot of the time, both for humans and for other animals. You know, humans prey on uh, each other in various uh, really problematic and uh, nasty ways. So yesterday um, or the day before, you know, in the UK, we're, we're waking up to, um, the, you know, seeing these 39 Chinese uh, immigrants have died in this kind of refrigerated ratio. So humans are preying on each other all of the time. Uh, and, and that's a pretty uh, nasty uh, thing. And we find that non-human animals are also preying on each other in lots of ways. And um, for me, we need to we need to recognize those two issues in continuity. We need to recognize the world is not as God would have it. Um, and a fundamental Christian response to this violent world is to recognize that this does not fully express uh, the will of the God that made us. And we long for, with Paul and that groaning creation, we long for the time when this groaning will be overcome um, and God's will be, will be truly done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, but for me, that means... Um, that we don't need to ontologize the violence of uh, the lion any more than we ontologize the violence of fellow uh, humans. You know, if I'm going to be fit for that new creation, uh, there's an astonishing change that will need to take place in me to um, um, to become, um, you know, a peaceable person uh, that could dwell peaceably with fellow creatures in that new creation. And it seems to me that's a much bigger change than is going to be required of the lion. You know, lions enjoy all kinds of things apart from chasing uh, gazelles. You know, we get obsessed by their violence, but we don't, uh, you know, rather than their maternal care or their, you know, love for lounging around in the sunshine. So, so I think we need to be really careful to avoid picking on um, this kind of particular fascination that a certain reception of Darwinian theory has for violence um, and for contest and the way that that's used ideologically in all kinds of ways. I think there are certain nature documentaries uh, tradition that, you know, that are, are very ideologically driven in that way and kind of fascination with the violence. And maybe that has a role in legitimizing intrahuman violence as well. And, and we need to, I think we need to be prepared to be affirming of a robust theological vision that says, you know, violence is not how our God creates. Um, and that, you know, I don't, that doesn't end the, the difficulty of giving an account of, of, of theology and evolution, which I think uh, we need, but I think it closes off um, the attractiveness of certain routes, including the one that Chris Southgate pursues. Thank you for that. That was really, really um, helpful and insightful. Uh, so I have a, uh, I live in the house with a two and a half year old. So I've got some questions based on animals and family TV shows and movies. Wow. Right. Okay. You can choose to have, where you take them in terms of responses. We've kind of covered some of it, I guess, uh, but you can see how you go. So we're going to start with probably the biggest uh, UK export of this millennium, uh, Peppa Pig. Uh, so Peppa Pig and other anthropomorphized or shows where animals are anthropomorphized to act like people, are they helpful or a hindrance in breaking down the many ill-informed theological and philosophical attempts to create a division between humans and other animals? 
Interesting. Yeah. So um, today we're just celebrating the um, 15th birthday of our youngest uh, child. So Peppa Pig, I think we could have just kind of missed it uh, yeah. in relation to um, uh, sort of parental engagement. But I think the first, the first really fascinating thing is what are all those animals doing in like every children's book and every you know ch uh, children's TV program? I mean, it's, they're, they're absolutely everywhere. It seems like we can't imagine what it would be like to engage our children imaginatively with the world, except through engagement with um, animals. And that I think is a really interesting and fascinating starting point. Mm. Um, and it seems to me to be so, you know, something um, that's both interesting and that we should be sort of strongly affirming. It seems to me that the sort of deep wisdom, which, you know, probably goes back way beyond Aesop, Aesop's fables, you know, in terms of ancient uh, literature, this, this deep sense that one of the primary things that we need to do with um, these new humans is induct them into this space of uh, living among uh, fellow creatures. That seems like a, a really interesting uh, thing to uh, affirm and celebrate. Um, and I'm always struck by what must be a near universal sense in meat-eating households uh, for young children to suddenly realize these uh, cuddly uh, creatures that have been uh, around the crib and around the bedside um, and in all these storybooks um, are also, you know, their, their bodies are littering the plates of what these, uh, what their sort of trusted parents are uh, giving them to, to eat. You know, there must be a particularly, you know, however that's negotiated, mm -hmm. that must be something that, um, a disconnect that pretty much every child uh, fed meat needs to um, engage with. Um, but kind of onto the more particular question about sort of anthropomorphization. Um, so I think there's, a, there's an unhappy history about concern about anthropomorphization. So th there was, you know, until recently, um, there was a sort of scientific kind of um, uh, concern that um, we need to recognize that any attempt to um, identify with other creatures and attribute anything like human emotions or whatever to, to other creatures was a sort of a, 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 a misstepping. I, I think we need to recognize that um, fellow creatures are like and unlike us in myriad ways. And the, the uh, sort of... Um, animal studies that have you know, come through in recent decades have been demonstrating that, of, of course, we're unlike other animals in in lots of ways, but we also have significant continuities. So, so, so once you've once you've realised that monkeys have a sense of justice, um, then you recognise that that it's not improper to say, well, that monkey is grumpy because um, uh, he's been treated unfairly. You know, the other monkey got a grape um, when th they did that task, um, but this monkey didn't. And so he's kind of sitting, maybe not quite with his arms crossed and kind of grumpy, but, but he's, you know, we, we, can, we can sort of empathize uh, uh, with that. And that's not um, anthropomorph problematic anthropomorphization. That's, um, um, that's uh, a, a proper recognition of continuity. Um, but anthropomorphization can go wrong. So there are people that are sort of dressing animals up in all kinds of um, uh, uh, costumes that may not be terribly comfortable and kind of thinking of them as something other than they are. So we need to be you know, attentive to, to what uh, creatures uh, actually are. Mm. Um, but, you know, so uh, in, the, in the sort of Peppa Pig world, I think to, to think about other animals as, you know, first of all, capable of relationship, um, part of their own creaturely space where they've got uh, interactions with uh, other uh, animals, capable of kind of uh, love and concern and empathy, um, that seems to me an entirely, you know, unproblematic uh, thing to be doing. In, in, indeed, the lives of the saints uh, have quite a lot in common with some of those things in terms of seeing non-human animals as quite capable of uh, responding to uh, humans, feeling contrition, feeling humility, uh, feeling uh, compassion, and in, you, you mm. know. Those are those are things that are present in 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 our um, hagiographies uh, as well as in contemporary children's literature. Mm. Thank you for that. So the next one I want to ask is about the show The Octonauts, which if you're if you were not in the year of Peppa Pig, you won't be in the year of Octonauts, which is uh, basically the premise is a polar bear, a cat, and a penguin are like an A team esque, uh, you know, going out and helping other sea creatures. I uh, don't know why a cat's involved. He's a pirate. I guess that <laughs> that explains it. Uh, but their, their uh, tagline is to explore, rescue, protect. Uh, and, you know, I was watching an episode the other day where they 
uh, helping a bunch of baby sea turtles um, who have to, you know, get born on an island uh, and something happens to the island, so they move into another island so they'll be safe. And then when they hatch, there are birds which want to attack the sea turtles, so they help the sea turtles get to the water. Now, I guess you talk about the complex web of relationships, particularly when it comes to ethics, uh, around how we engage animals as we meet them. And so I guess the question I have is, is it, are we meant to take you know, the love thy neighbour, the, the good Samaritan, that it's the proximity of actual proximity and not the proximity of kind which should um, motivate us to act to help an animal in need or a person in need or whatever in need? Um, or should it be a more uh, leave no trace, um, hands off because the bird needs to eat to live uh, kind of approach? Or is a binary such as that just part of the problem? Mm-hmm. That's my Octonauts question. Yeah, so I and I think that's a really deep question. So, um, as I engage with the the th- sort of thinking about our relationships with other animals, one of the things I was surprised to find is that engaging uh, in depth in the biblical and theological tradition seemed to bring me out in a different place than some contemporary animal advocates uh, were. So. There's kind of what, it's a slight caricature, but you could kind of think of a wilderness ethic where the kind of primary human responsibility is just to leave well alone. We'll just kind of establish zones of separation. You know, the ideal would be for humans just to sort of withdraw, to leave uh, space for uh, so-called wild nature uh, and for us to uh, sort of have nothing uh, to do with it. Um, um, It seems to me that the... Uh, picture we're given in uh, biblical and theological tradition is is not that one. It seems you know we've got we've got these kind of visions of harmonious uh, coexistence, mm. and God knows we're not very good at that harmonious coexistence. But but the the ideal seems to be to live well with rather than to cut ourselves off from. Mm. Um, and it's, there seems to be a really good sense in that. Um, um, both you know theoretically and practically now first of all it's a very odd thing to think that this one species homo sapiens is a special case that could should be considered an entirely different sort of category in an ecological sense um, from all others uh, from all other species so I think if we are committed to the idea of thinking of ourselves alongside fellow species it's the odd idea that we kind of have to exclude ourselves from creaturely spaces because we're not really like um Creature, we're not really a creature like them. Um, so that, that's kind of one of a theoretical reason. But also, uh, given that the, the, there is practically no place on Earth now which is unimpacted by our activity, I think we need to recognize that the, the real, really key ethical challenge um, is how we are to enable the flourishing of other creatures alongside us uh, because there's no space in a sense that's not alongside you know on the planet given the scope of um, of our activity so we definitely need to be leaving you know well alone in lots of respects but i don't think that means um uh uh just detaching ourselves as, as if we could from this uh, uh, widely creaturely world. One of the things I was really struck by when I was writing about companion animal relationships is there's some suggestions that um, domestication of dogs might be re- might go back a really, really long way and much further than previously thought, maybe more than 100,000 years ago, which is um, about as long as we've been humans, um, in a, language using humans in a way we might recognize ourselves. And so that seems to me to... Be interest, an interesting thought to think alongside this biblical inheritance that we've we've never been human except in uh, in relationship to uh, fellow animal creatures, uh, and so the idea. So, so we need to be thinking about how how to live well in that uh, space rather than um, rather than think about detaching ourselves. And and I, I think that that's really then interesting and challenging in relation to the kind of engagements uh, that uh, you describe. So I was away with our younger daughter, who's just whose birthday is today in the summer, um, at a festival and a Christian arts festival called Greenbelt here. Um, and at one point, um, she recognized, she noticed that in the sort of tracking that they'd put down on the grass, that meant that a lot of bugs had sort of fallen into gaps between the tracking and couldn't get out. Um, and that made her stop and want to spend time lifting the bugs out of those spaces and releasing them uh, to be able to uh, sort of get away and do their uh, creaturely things. And um, 
that just really struck me as a sense of what it might be to be res responsible. And, and of course, that the task is is you know the, the task was huge. He could have easily spent the whole of the rest of our time there just doing uh, that one thing. But it reminded me of a story that um, Karl Barth uh, told of a. German theologian, unnamed German theologian after the First World War, who was sort of going back uh, to his home and found um, uh, particular uh, creatures sort of not able to cross a particular weir in Bamberg. Um, and he sp sort of spent a lot of time there and then you know, had to leave, but he kept going back because he wanted to sort of help these uh, creatures. We, we, and we, we Unfortunately, we're not God, or fortunately, we're not God. We we can't we can't save all of these other creatures. This is we're, we're finite creatures, and it's beyond our strength. And there are particular kinds of initiatives that would be really ill-advised, like preventing. You know, even if we could preventing lions killing gazelles, you know, all of the time would obviously be disastrous for for lions in the current context. It might turn out to be bad, quite bad, as it turns out for. Uh, gazelles within the particular ecological uh, network. So we need to recognize that we're not God. We don't have um, powers or wisdom to be um, able to uh, sort of, you know, establish prematurely this kind of peaceable uh, kingdom um, uh, through our own efforts. But that doesn't mean, I think that, uh, I think, I think that means we've still got a responsibility to, 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 you know, within the animals that are our neighbors um, and, the, and the animals that, that we meet and live alongside how do we do well by them and for me that immediately makes me rush you know people often ask me oh yeah but what about so should we be saving gazelles from lions david where i say and, and my primary response is well the magnitude of what we're doing in relation to our consumption of um domesticated animals uh which are now you know 96% uh, of the biomass on, of, of animal, animal biomass on earth is human and domesticated animal. We've kind of, you know, the magnitude of our operations is so extreme that it, that, that it seems we, we ought to be concerned about how we can continue to, to make space for wild animals in that context. But the, the urgent thing for us to do is attend to the animals that we're raising for food, uh, because in terms of scale and impacts um, and the astonishingly impoverished lives it inflicts on animals, that's kind of way beyond um, any, anything, anything that we uh, could possibly you know, find fault for lions for in terms of their impacts on uh, fellow creatures. Thank you for that. This has been absolutely phenomenal conversation and there's like so much more we could cover mm -hmm. and if you are listening and you're like there's so much more they need to cover uh, <laughs> that's why there are these two excellent books <laughs> that you can pick up and read and lots more will be covered <laughs> david is there anything uh, you want to promote or draw people's attention to beyond buying and and reviewing the books online and all those things that, that help uh, anything else you want to draw people's attention to? thanks um so one thing um, I would really encourage people to have a look at if they're interested in how Christians might engage with um, animals as a faith issue uh, and perhaps how they could encourage fellow Christians to be, be uh, beginning to think about this stuff is to look up um, the website of the organization I set up a few years ago with Sarah Withrow King called CreatureKind. So the website is becreaturekind.org. Um, and that's got a whole range of resources for beginning to think uh, about animals in a Christian context, including uh, a free six-week course with video and Bible study and uh, theological texts and a leader's guide and stuff um, that I piloted during Lent in uh, my church here in uh, Chester. And so it's a really good way of just opening up questions, the kinds of theological questions, and then some of the ethical implications that we've been talking about. Um, and lots of people have said that that's worked really well in their church context for getting really good conversations uh, going uh, so that's becreaturekind.org. Uh, um, the other thing I'm really hoping will go viral uh, uh, quite quickly is a spin-off from CreatureKind called Default Veg. And so in a few contexts where I work, like uh, the department uh, at my university and some of the academic conferences I go to, um, I've just proposed, well, what if when we did catering, uh, we made vegetarian vegan the default, and then if people want to eat meat, they can um, request it as a special meal. Mm. Um, and so that just shifts the default. Everyone can still eat what they want, um, but um, the default is vegetarian and vegan. And so 
Um, that has the macro effect of reducing consumption of animal products, which we know is a really good idea um, for human reasons, for animal reasons, and for uh, environmental reasons. Um, but it sidesteps quite a lot of the standard objections of who are you, who are you to tell me what uh, to eat. So um, you can find um, defaultveg.com. Uh, you can find uh, sort of resources for thinking about how you might uh, propose that policy. And that I began to, it's a spin-off from CreatureCon because I began to realize that could apply to any organization. Um, uh, and so any company or uh, institution or church or anything, anything you belong to, anything that does events catering could just make that simple cost-free uh, switch it would be great for humans, the uh, animals on the planet. That's excellent. And uh, for anyone interested in the um, Creature Kind, uh, there's an interview, not in the podcast stream, but on the YouTube channel with Sarah, with Roe King. We talk about it a bunch as well. So if you want more information, uh, you can find it there. David, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I hope uh, lots of people are inspired to get the book and think through theology you know, in conversation with these issues. Thanks, Liam. It's been good to, good to talk with you.